In this episode, I talk with Dr. Nicole Dory, a professor in certified animal behaviorist at the University of Florida, about animal training, ethics, and more. Enjoy. So I took your class on animal training, and I think one of the things that really opened my eyes to was the role that operant conditioning, which in its simplest terms is just learning through punishment and reinforcement. So the role that operant conditioning plays not only in training animals to live and work alongside humans, but also in their natural ecology to help them survive. So I think a good place to start is to ask kind of a general question, which is what is the function that operant learning plays versus something like instinct or observational learning for many animals? Operant conditioning specifically is the increase or decrease of behavior depending on the contingencies with Mm -hmm. those and happens in the animal's lifetime. So instinct is something that happens when the animal through through genetics, right, through the biology Mm -hmm. aspect of it. And so operant conditioning happens within the animal's lifetime. So we talk about... um, and the ultimate cause and things or the proximate cause and things, the the innate ability of an animal or the way that it learns through its lifetime. So both of those are are different. And what was the other thing? I'm sorry, you said instinct and observational learning. Typically, that's more of like a, a researcher term, not something that mm-hmm. an animal is doing, unless you're talking about like um, the animal observing and then copying that. Yeah, I'm almost talking about like mirroring behavior. Yeah, so that's what my whole PhD was on. Um, It's not different necessarily. That kind of learning is trial and error learning. Mm -hmm. And um, that could, that can very well be operant in nature and that they get, uh, you know, positive reinforcement for doing something and that increases the behavior. Right or they get punished for doing something and that decreases the behavior. So it, it, it could be depending on how that behavior is, is happening. Does right. That make sense? Yeah. Yeah. But as, so as a behaviorist, you, you wouldn't look at something like, you know, mirroring behavior and, and kind of get, ascribe that like a cognitive. Kind no, of yeah. no. Okay. And imitation is because it's my PhD. It's so parsed out. The definition is so tight Mm-hmm. that it's really hard to see in the animal world. Um, we don't really see true imitation at all, actually. Okay. It, it's, it's a lot of trial and error learning that they might get really quickly. And so it looks like they're imitating the behavior, mm. um, but it's not. Even like uh, the, the classic with the sweet potatoes. Do you know that? With the, with the monkeys and the sweet potatoes? Vaguely. I, I, it's, it's kind of eliciting some sort of memory that I have. Yeah. So even with that, that's like the classic imitation example where, um, scientists went to uh, a remote area of, of Japan and watched these, um, monkeys and one of the baby monkeys, they were giving them sweet potatoes. Um, Mm. and one of the baby monkeys dropped the sweet potatoes in the ocean and started like washing it and eating it. And when they came back, everybody did it. Um, and even that we can't say is imitation because there was such a huge break in time between right. that aspect. So I, I, I mean, it's rare to find. <laughs> okay. So you would say, I mean, like, obviously instinct is going to play a role in a, in a lot of animal behavior. 
like we talked about, like instinctual drift, I remember learning about, which was pretty interesting. But like, would you say that operant conditioning, you know, whether it be sort of this mirroring behavior or kind of the typical way of that operant conditioning is considered where it's like kind of these immediate punishes and reinforcers, would you say that that plays probably like the largest role in how animals actually behave? I know that's more of a theoretical question. Well, I mean, so I can give you an example. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is a huge controversy in the dog cognition world on how dogs understand human points, mm. um, human gestures in general. Um, you know, if we look at something, can they then go check out that thing? If we point to something, do they then go to our points? Those kind of things. And there's one camp that says that this is um, innate. It it mm-hmm. happened through domestication of the dog, and dogs automatically know how to do this. And this is this is something that's instinctual to the dog through domestication. And there's another camp that I'm on that says it might be both, right? Most behavior right. is. It might be both in that they're genetically altered through domestication in some way to watch us as humans mm. to 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 be closer to us to to observe our gestures but they learn the specifics of it coming to when we point coming to where we look through a lifetime and my research shows that they don't really pick this up until about 9 weeks of age okay. um so if it was instinctual they should be able to do it at birth essentially, you know, like once they're able to see and hear, you know, um, but it, it takes them, it takes them a while. And even humans aren't able to follow a point until about nine months of age. So to say that dogs can follow it instinctually and humans can't seems right. So, so would you say at best, you would say that there's maybe a genetic predisposition that domestic dogs have to observe human pointing, but it's not the case that they just have this uh, kind of innate instinct to, to actually like, to understand what the point is yeah. to understand that the point, you know, we point a lot to our dogs, right? We point mm-hmm. and say, here, come here and get this food. Come here and get this ball. Like if you realize how much you point to your to your dog, you would, you would realize why they pick it up so quickly, but yeah, that's exactly it. They have some kind of like genetic predisposition to watch us, okay. but they don't necessarily understand to follow a, a specific gesture. And obviously when it comes to stuff like evolutionary psychology, like I know a lot of it is largely theoretical in, in a lot of cases. So like, what's the what's the assumption that like dogs that were more apt to watch the movements of humans or pay attention to the gestures of humans were like bred. I I guess I'm more in your camp on this because I'm not really sure how it would specifically be the case that that would be the trait that was picked for. Um, Well, so yeah, you kind of have to go to why dogs were domesticated and the theories about how dogs were domesticated. And that kind of goes back to hunters and gatherers and the use of dogs to help for hunting and scavengers and the wolves. And so what they believe is that there was a group of individuals, you know, a a hunter and gathering kind of group, and they, you know, were messy, right? They left bones out and they left, um, you know, pieces of meat out. And so the wolves would come and start to scavenge. And then those wolves, 
you know, had babies and, and, you know, they realized it was a safe place and then humans started to train, you know, and that, and that kind of aspect of it. So domestication, I don't know. Do you know Belayev's foxes? Yes, I do. It's the, it's that sort of rapid, it was a Russian series of experiments. Is it still going on? Um, I mean, yes, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, um, the, the owners of Publix actually own one of these foxes. Oh. So you, can, you can actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can actually like get them <laughs> if you wanted one. Um, yeah. So, so right. Exactly. So, so they were, they had these foxes for their pelts and they were mean. And so they decided to breed the calmer ones, the more, the, the quote unquote nicer ones. And so with that breeding, within three generations, not only did their behavior become calmer and they were nicer and they wouldn't bite, um, but it also changed them physiologically. Their, their ears started to flop, their tails started to, to drop. Um, their coloring, which doesn't help if you're you know, skinning them for their pelts, um, their coloring started to change and started to be bicolored and started to look different because the, the chemistry of the dog started to change. And we know that that domesticated domestication of so so all animals have a social critical period. Mm-hmm. And that social critical period in wolves is about seven days and in dogs is about seven weeks, seven to 14 weeks. And so you have to socialize them to humans during that period of time. And if you don't, then they can be aggressive. They can be fear aggressive. They're scared of the world, or they can just be aggressive. Um, And they're starting to notice that certain breeds need to be socialized quicker. So there's research out there that shows like neonatal breeds, like their golden retriever who, you know, wouldn't hurt a fly. Um, is actually has a larger social critical period. And so that's what they found happened to domestication. Domesticated animals have longer social critical periods. So that's why the wolves is much shorter than the dog, for example. Um, And so that's probably what happened. We don't know, but that's probably what happened with these foxes as well. And that's why you, you get them during their social critical period. It's kind of like a, um, uh, uh, implant, you know, like a, I'm, I'm, um, imprinting. imprinting. Yeah. They kind of imprint. So that's why like, like, um, Anatolian shepherds are out with sheep as a puppy because they're imprinting on those sheep. You don't want them to imprint on humans. And so that social critical period gets longer, but there could be other physiological changes that happen during domestication. So that was a really long winded way of answering your question in that. Yes there are biological changes that happen to domestication to make the animal more likely to pay attention to humans. But what those specific behaviors are, are learned during a lifetime. Okay. And so this is kind of a tangential question, but in terms of like social critical periods, like after a social critical period has passed, is it just extremely hard to socialize an, uh, like an animal with, you know, yes. another species. Yeah. Yeah. So, so even if you think about dogs and shelters, okay. Right. Um, dogs that are, that are, you know, raised in the shelter and, and, you know, hasn't, hasn't been a pet previously, 
kind of was, you know, born in the woods and they found it kind of thing. They brought it to the shelter. That dog is like really timid and really scared. Mm. Um, it takes a lot of training to get that dog to trust humans, to be around humans, to be around other dogs, those kind mm. of things. Gotcha. So in a lot of ways, I've seen that, you know, viewing animals from a behaviorist standpoint has a similar benefit to how, you know, we view humans within human behavioral therapy in the sense that it takes away the blame from the animal itself um, and places that blame instead, if you want to still call it blame on a learning history and, you know, new stimuli um, to help better, you know, change behavior. So I remember a discussion I had with someone about kind of the labeling and treatment of an animal um, because they said it was like a bad animal. And so, you know, they did certain things to this animal. Um, and I remember telling them that, you know, it might've cyclically, you know, been causing the animal's problem behavior. So how important is it to you, um, to separate judgments about an animal from judgments about an animal's behavior? Oh, I mean, it's, it's everything like, especially in the animal world, we tend to label animals, a certain thing, label mm -hmm. animals, aggressive or label animals, um, sweet or label animals, you know, and, and they might not fit into that in every situation, right? Mm -hmm. it, 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 depending on the, the contingencies of the environment, can, depending on the stimuli in the environment, all of that affects the particular behavior. And so um, I try to teach my students, you know, to get away from those labels mm -hmm. and try to look at the, the environmental um, aspects that are controlling that behavior. Have you seen labels influence? I mean, at least from my own perspective, I've seen like the labeling of an animal particularly be detrimental to the way that that animal is treated, especially like when it's kind of a funny example, but like if you tell somebody like this dog is aggressive, there's kind of this thing that goes on where like, even if the dog's really not that aggressive, the person therefore like never has the opportunity to interact with that dog in a way that elicits a non-aggressive response. I'm not sure if that's a great way to phrase that, but I guess my point is if you go in thinking a, a dog or a cat is aggressive, which, you know, there are cases where that's some good knowledge to have, but if you use that as your primary reference point for the way that you're going to treat that, that animal, um, I've seen it have detrimental effects. So I was wondering if, if you've seen that in any cases. Yes. Um, but I think it's because our behavior changes and the dog just doesn't know what to do, mm -hmm. you know? And so if they're, if they're fearful anyway, right, let's just not, not say they're aggressive, but let's right. just say it's fear or aggression, right? Like they're reacting because they're scared rather than they're reacting because they're trying to defend themselves or something along those right. lines. Um, yeah, because your body language, as we just talked about, dogs understand human body language um, fairly early, and mm -hmm. and your body language is scaring them. Right. You see it a lot in horses specifically. Um, they're used to a, a specific fluidity of of our body language, and when you're rigid and you're scared, they react. Okay. So kind of in line with that and, and also shifting a bit towards, you know, ethics. I've seen controversy around, you know, the training of animals, especially with tasks that are for human entertainment or for those that seem to make an animal, you know, more content with being treated like an object. So I'm thinking about something like uh, some people would point at stuff like crate training for dogs. 
So as someone who has worked with and trained animals extensively, uh, what clear guidelines uh, ethically do you follow or subscribe to when it comes to what behaviors you will train? Oh God, I, I, I don't like, I, I, I mm -hmm. don't have any clear guidelines. Um, it really depends on the animal. So like crate training, crate training for some animals, if you do it right and you do it early enough and you're consistent with it is a great thing for a dog because it gives them a place, a safe place to go. And I'm not saying, you know, a crate that's a proper size for them, right, of course, right. yeah. but, but it gives them a, a safe place to go, especially if, you know, there's a new baby in the house that's crawling, you know, I guess not a new baby, but there's a new toddler in the house that's crawling around or something mm -hmm. like that. It gives them a safe place to go. That's their place. And if the parent is aware then they can also train the baby not to touch the crate or not to go near the crate so that mm -hmm. it is a real safe place for that dog. If you're not home and the dog is, you know, lonely or having mild separation anxiety, then that's a great place for the dog to go to feel comfortable and safe. Mm -hmm. On the other side of that, there are some dogs that are claustrophobic. Um, and so crate training a dog that's claustrophobic, whether it be, you know, maybe later in its life or it's had some experiences that have made it kind of claustrophobic and nobody's really worked with that behavior. And so the owner just goes in and crate trains because they think that it's going to help them with a safe place that could be detrimental. And so I don't, I don't have a, a clear cut guideline because it really depends on the animal. It really depends on the behavior. It really depends on the history. Um, yeah. There's a lot of things I look at and, and some behaviors that are, you know, quote unquote problem behaviors are because of a medical issue. Mm -hmm. And so all of my clients, the first thing I do is make sure it's not a medical issue because you can do all the behavioral training you want, right. but if it's, you know, medical, then, then you're not going to get anywhere. Hmm. So kind of on a more commercial side, we've kind of seen um, circuses that heavily featured animals in the United States. You know, they're basically gone. Not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say they're basically gone now. And, yeah. and, you know, zoos, also seem to be stepping away from kind of like performance and entertainment oriented events. Um, so do you see those things as mostly relics of the past? I see them being reframed. Um, I, first of all, would never put zoos in the same right, category right, of as course. a circus. Um, and I wouldn't put SeaWorld in the same category as a circus either. I know they're super controversial right now, which mm -hmm. is silly, but um, I see them reframing. I still see it as quote unquote entertainment, because let's face it, that that's what zoos and aquariums are. They're entertainment, but they have a con, they have a, a conservation purpose to them. They have, you know, it, it's, it, there's an education purpose to them, but it's also entertainment. I mean, I don't, I don't right. think you can separate the two, Gotcha. but I think what, what we're seeing more is entertainment for the purpose of educating, which is, which is really what zoos and aquariums are there. Um, bringing animals that, I mean, most of us would never see in the wild and bringing them to our backyards essentially. Mm. And research has shown that the longer you stand in front of that enclosure, the longer you learn about that animal, the more 
attached, for lack of a better word, you get, and the more likely you're willing to donate and actively participate in that animal's conservation in the wild. Mm. So yes, they are moving away from entertainment for the purpose of entertainment. Right. But I think it's a really detrimental aspect to the conservation of animals if they move away from those kinds of shows with the purpose of educating the public about that animal. Right. Because you think it'll just reduce exposure and therefore, you know, absolutely. If you don't have exposure, I mean, there's only so much you can do on the internet, right? If you don't Mm -hmm. have exposure and you don't have exposure to a young age, then you're not going to, you're not going to attached again is the wrong word, but, but you're not going to, to be attached to that animal or have a purpose with that animal, you know? Right. And so, I think on on the topic of zoos, one one concept that I ended up exploring a lot as a product of your class was kind of the AZA accreditation of zoos and aquariums. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you mind defining what that accreditation is and why it's important to look for when visiting a zoo or aquarium? Because I think sure. when I when I when I initially asked that question about, you know, I said circuses and then I said zoos in another sentence. And I I don't of course they shouldn't be lumped together, but I think in the popular consciousness, sometimes they might be because of kind of surge of uh, sensationalism about roadside zoos in particular. Yeah, well, I mean, PETA is is getting more and more um, popular mm-hmm. in a way. Um, and with that comes a lot of miseducation, um, as with any kind of extremist um, organization. And so... Yeah, roadside zoos. Um, there's one in St. Augustine. There's Big Cats um, close to Gainesville. I know a lot of students work at Big Cats. Those are those are um, yeah roadside um, mm-hmm. attractions. Um, they're very different from accredited zoos. Um, so I kind of need to back up a little bit as far as AZA goes because. WAZA is the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And so that's the huge umbrella that is international. And then under that comes JAZA, which is Japanese Aquarium, uh, Zoos and Aquari- Association of Zoos mm. and Aquariums. And there is IAZA, which is the European Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and BIAZA, which is the British and Irish Association <laughs> of Zoos and Aquariums. So you see where I'm going with this. Yeah. Right? We should really be. AASA, American Association of Zoos and Aquariums, or or USASA, or something along those lines. But you know, as Americans go, um, we are we just took it all over, and we're like, well, we're the Association of Zoos right. and Aquariums. Um, our Association of Zoos and Aquariums is just um, there's actually a, a Mexico Association of Zoos and Aquariums, so we're really just the United States. AZA is the accreditation for our zoos and aquariums in the U.S. And, and they have a very strict set of rules that, that zoos and aquariums have to follow as far as breeding. They are not allowed to breed mm-hmm. any animals without going through the species, um, species, uh, there's an acronym that I'm not remembering, but basically the species plan. So they have genetics on all the animals of that particular species. And so zoos will ship males and females to another zoo 
for mating to make sure that those animals are genetically diverse. And they don't mate those animals unless there's a need for an animal at a particular zoo in the U.S. So we're not pulling, I mean, we haven't pulled animals out of the wild in, I don't know, a very, very long time. Um, I mean, decades and decades and decades. So that's how animals get into the zoo. So it's very, very regulated, very, very specific. They have rules on training and how you're allowed to train. They have rules on research and what that looks like and the ethics of all of that. Um, and so there's a world standard on all of this stuff. Um, and then obviously there's a, there's a standard within the U.S. Um, so it's really different. Those roadside attractions breed because you know, they bring in babies and they let you come in and tigers and they let you play with all of that stuff. And, and that's very, very, very different. That's exploiting. Um, right. Zoos don't exploit. You call them roadside attractions. So you would yeah. like to move away from even calling them, you know, zoos and aquariums. Yes, I would. Like those yeah. types of things. Okay. Yeah. I get you. In, in a way then this question, I'm going to still use the word zoo because I think it, I think it would make sense like in the broader context to use it. But sure. so do you think that there's a way for all zoos in the U S to become places that don't breed for specifically for profitability or for sales uh, and regulate that they work for conservation goals and only house animals uh, incapable of returning safely to the wild or animals that need to be in captivity for conservation purposes? I mean, the research on reintroduction is, um, not great. Right. Um, so, so breeding to reintroduce to the wild, I don't know. We haven't found a way to do it. Mm. Um, there's just too many variables, but the conservation of the animals that are already in the wild is what is, is important. Um, yeah. I mean, there's absolutely a way for these roadside attractions to join AZA. Um, but that's not in their budget plan. That's not the purpose of them. Their purpose is to make money. Um, their, their purpose is not, I mean, although they say that they're, you know, here to help animals <laughs> and they're here for conservation, that is, they're, they're for profit, 110%. So in terms of returning animals safely to the wild, I was thinking about something like, uh, obviously this isn't a complete reintroduction, but I was thinking about something like the Florida panther population where they took Texas panthers and then the Florida panthers of which there were like, I think it was a low number. I think it was like under like 25 or something. And tried to fix a lot of the genetic problems uh, in that population. And I think to my knowledge, it did succeed. Is there research on that? Well, they, my, my background, actually... yeah, my background is from like a wildlife ecology perspective, but uh -huh. to my, to my knowledge, um, what actually happened was this wasn't so much animals going from captivity to the wild, but more so animals in the wild being mixed with a, with a population that was captive. Gotcha. So they didn't take the animals out right. of okay then that's really different yeah 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 but uh, and they didn't breed yeah. these animals in captivity to then reintroduce them that's where i'm that's where the the problem is okay i get you kind of in another vein something that i was thinking about is you know when it comes to common ways that we train animals there are a lot of things that might be lacking like not running preference assessments prior to training so would you mind explaining what those are and why they are important so preference assessments are, um, there's different kinds, but, right. but basically are, is a method of testing to see what kind of stimuli the animal prefers. 
um, mm. whether that be toys or whether that be food. And so what that would give you in theory is the animal's most preferred item. And so that's why it's important to run them. There, there is um, research that I'm running um, and there might be other labs doing it too, that is, that is looking to see if the most preferred item is actually the item that the animal will work for mm. in training. Some of the research is showing that they like it, like they kind of like it and, it, and it's, it's great, but it's not necessarily the best thing for them. So like they'll pick the candy gotcha. over the, you know, over something that you would most likely want to give them. Um, and so, or they really like this toy, but they don't want to work for the toy. And so, so that's kind of what the, the research. So I have a paper that I'm submitting that that's looking at toys versus food. And we're finding that dogs prefer food over toys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I think overall the preference assessment will definitely tell you what the animal prefers. Not necessarily in every case will that be what the animal will work for. And something I do remember reading about, at least within the coursework, people will generalize what they think an entire species likes based off of, you know, whether it's like a preconceived notion or based on what one individual likes. And they apply that to all the individuals in terms of like what would be the preferred reinforcer to use in training. So is there ever a case where there's something that's universally, you know, preferred or is Not it going to always differ? Okay. No, according to the research is very individual, very, very individual. So you need to run a preference assessment for every individual. Um, the other research that, that we, we have done is, um, is out at zoos and, and I really want to run this with pets as well, mm. but so far what we're finding that, that people who have worked with these animals for 30 years and really believe that they know this animal inside and out are not great at picking the preferred item for the animal. Right. So we have these preconceived notions for the individual and we're wrong most of the time. So for anybody who's like interested in running a preference assessment for their animal in particular, since you know, the feasibility goes up the less animals that you have to do it for. Um, right. <laughs> Uh, how would you perform a preference assessment? I mean, in the case of like, uh, like, you know, food or toys, for instance. Well, first, I really think you need to do a data sheet because you can't really do this. <laughs> in your head. But right. you, you pick four items that you think your animal likes, and then you counterbalance them for side. So you have to run two um, mm -hmm. trials on each item, right? Okay. Each pairing of an item. So let's say it's, it's uh, tuna fish and, um, carrots. I don't know why I picked those, but anyway, <laughs> tuna fish and carrots, then you want your tuna fish in your left hand and your carrots in your right. And then you need to run another one with carrots in your left hand and tuna fish in your right. And so you'll have those four items, you'll counterbalance across side, and then you'll rank them for each time that they pick them. And hopefully at the end, you'll have one item that's picked pretty much every single time. Gotcha. Um, across it, and then that's your preferred item. You could also have a, a tie sometimes. But. Yeah, which what what do you do in the case of a tie? Do you just alternate the reinforcement that, that you use? Because I know could that alternate yeah. the reinforcement on it, or you can you know pair it a couple of times and see if one comes out. <laughs> if it's a true 
uh, tie, then yeah, you just, I mean, it's good to have a tie, honestly, because then if they get bored of one, you can switch to the other and vice versa, you know. Right. Is the term called satiation in, in behavioral research? Is that what it is? Well, satiation is when you're full. Essentially. Right. Okay. So what is it when, when, you know, a preferred stimulus becomes no longer preferred or when, you know, over time, the more of a specific food that you have, the less you're inclined to keep eating more of that food. But if you have, you know, a variety of foods, they can serve as like alternatively reinforcing and in a certain sequence, they can be more reinforcing than just eating a large portion of one all at once. Yeah. I I don't know if there's a term for it. I just think literally it becomes non-preferred. Okay. Gotcha. Um, I mean, we, we, we see this in, in enrichment, right. Where they have like an enrichment item and Mm. you have to change out that enrichment item every, you know, three or four days because they just, you know, it's, it's overexposed and they get bored of it. How would you define enrichment? When I think of enrichment, I typically think of it in the context of zoos and aquariums, but is there an example of enrichment in the home? Would it just be something like toys? Yeah. I mean, you use, if, if you have a dog, you use enrichment, you, right. you leave your dog with a Kong with peanut butter in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I used to, you know, like, like chip boxes or cereal yeah. boxes. I would throw some treats in those and, and scatter them throughout the house when I would leave. And <laughs> that would be my dog's enrichment. Sometimes I would just throw um, her food across the floor and that would be her enrichment because she'd have to go scavenge for it. Um, so really what enrichment is, is increasing the value of an individual in their environment. Um, and so that, that can be a lot of different things, you know, it's making them more mobile, it's making them more active. So yeah, I mean, it could be toys, but it could also be food. Yeah. So something I'm thinking of is, you know, when people have dogs who, at least this is a context I know where people have dogs who eat too fast. So they have them like they, they put like the food in those little puzzle devices. Mm-hmm. Is that considered enrichment? Yeah. Okay. So, so kind of going back to um, what you were saying about training. So there's a huge controversy in the zoo and aquarium world is training enriching. So is, mm. are those shows that you see are the training for those shows you see enriching to the animal? you know, people go back and forth on it because is it really improving their life? And at one point, you know, it's kind of like learning to brush your teeth as a child or learning to do the dishes as your child. I don't know how you were as a child, but <laughs> it was so exciting. Like, oh my God, I get to do the dishes. No way. Like Initially. that was so cool. And then eventually you learn how to do it and it's not cool anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, training, like shaping might be enriching, but once they do it and they do the same thing, is it still enriching? And so um, I have a paper out that looked at preferences as assessment of training versus enrichment items, items that had food in them, because obviously training has food. So like a a Kong kind of thing with food in it. We had, these were wolves. So we had like a, a tire with uh, peanut butter smeared in it. Um, a, a tire, tire with, you know, deer meat smeared in it. Um, you know, they, they are wolves. Um, so, so that kind of thing. And we found out that that's individual. Some, some of them really enjoyed the training and training was enriching to them. And some of them found the enrichment items, um, 
you know, the, the, the other stimuli more and more enriching. When you're working with wolves, um, how close are you getting to the wolves? Oh, I mean, if you Google my name, you'll see. That yeah, I've, I've seen the picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, close. Yeah, very okay. close. These, so, so that particular wolf in the picture, those were actually um, are at a, a facility, okay. a research facility in Indiana, and they are um, raised. That's a whole social critical period. Okay. They are raised by humans um, from four weeks on so that they imprint so that they can be that close to us. The wolves I did that research with were out at Bush Gardens mm. and I was not close to those wolves at all. Okay. That's what I was wondering because I think a lot of people have the, this image of like things like wolves and bears and tigers and whatnot is like, you know, so dangerous that there's like no instance in which that you can get close to them. It's all about the social critical period. And right, right. If you have like a dog and you, you know, interact with them during a social, you know, that socio critical period and same thing with the same thing with a wolf, right? Are they both, I, I feel like the impression that people would still have, and maybe it's kind of the notions that we have about wolves and kind of like the, the, the media fear about wolves over like the past, I don't know, it's been centuries probably, but um, <laughs> is being near a wolf really any more dangerous than being around a dog in that case? Cause I still get the impression at least. Oh yeah. That, well, yeah, I yeah. mean, they're stronger. Right. They still wolves and yes, because I mean, dogs have dogs have been domesticated. Wolves have not. So so just because they it happened during their imprint, right. they're tamed. They're not domesticated. Right. I think that's There's the impression. nothing biologically happening to them. There's no they, they didn't increase their social critical period. They don't have the floppy ears like the lives foxes. Right. They, they're not being domesticated. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was getting at because I didn't want to say like just because you've been around an animal or because it's been socialized with humans means that it's necessarily super safe to be around. It's not um, domesticated, so that's yeah. that's that they're tame. They're not yeah. domesticated. There's, there's a very big. We use that word domestication, um, and we throw it around a lot. Mm. And um, there, it's a very specific biological thing that happens okay um and it doesn't happen in you know one generation right it, it takes multiple multiple generations for it to occur so so that's that's the difference obviously we have domesticated dogs right but yeah. i was wondering if if there have been any efforts to again domesticate dogs from a population of wolves I'm not sure what the scientific application would be. It seems like it would be something that would be in like a pop science magazine. Domesticate. Yeah, it does. So, so try to recreate. The yes, exactly. Um, no, I, I know nothing about. I know okay. Nothing. Okay. Um, I agree. I don't think that's science, you know, right. like, like pop pop. I can see it. Yeah. Being like a reality TV show. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> I don't, I don't know anything. I mean, I, I, it might be being done. I don't know anything about it. Okay. And so the last thing I wanted to ask you about uh, came to mind when I was thinking about kind of the fact that for behavioral training, 
It's not usually, if ever, required that punishment be used to train animals. But I think in the popular imagination, the idea of things like horse breaking or yelling at cats and dogs and so on live on as kind of these acceptable and common ways to train animals. So I was wondering if you would mind speaking on ways that people can train animals without resorting to punishment, as well as talking about some of the side effects or unintended side effects of punishment. So, I mean, Caesar Milan popularized punishment in dogs again. Um, I felt like we were making some good progress um, in the dog training world, and and he kind of brought us back. Um, I mean, look, the punishment is just decrease of behavior. So, so we're specifically talking about positive punishment, not punishment in general, right? There, there are behaviors we want to decrease. Um, and so with that, you can't say that you're all a positive or you're, you only use reinforcement that that's, you can't, you can't just use reinforcement because we're decreasing behaviors, positive punishment in dogs, um, in horses, are are specifically the use of adding a stimulus to decrease a behavior. So mm-hmm. adding a whip, adding shock, adding a choke collar, those are the kind of things that that you know we think about as issues in in the animal training world. The effects of them really depend on the animal. So if you have an aggressive dog and it's fear aggression and you use these positive punishment techniques, you can be reinforcing the fear because mm. the dog was already fearful and thinks you're going to hurt them. And then you do hurt them. <laughs> so you're not going to get anywhere in the training. Um, the other issue is it doesn't transfer very well. So, so you use, you know, positive punishment. You go to a trainer like a Cesar Milan right. and he, you know, kicks the dog in a specific area and he I don't know if you've slowed down his videos but that's what he does and and um he then tries to teach you it's a lot harder to teach those kind of techniques and to be consistent with them than it is uh, a reinforcement technique so that's another issue with it. it it is that it's it's it can increase the fear depending on you know the 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 can increase the bad behavior, I guess, in general, right? Um, depending on what the contingency is that's controlling that behavior, that's making that behavior increase. What what are the stimuli? What's the environmental aspects? And if you hire a trainer that uses those type of techniques, it's really hard for you to learn those type of techniques to see that behavior decrease. Um, in your own home. Dogs don't generalize very well. Um, that's research we're doing too. Mm. And so um, police dogs, for example, police dog trainers said that they need to train a behavior in 30 different locations with 30 different people before they say that dog has that behavior. And so having, you know, training the dog at a park or training the dog at a facility, even if it's positive reinforcement, um, you need to really work on that dog in different areas with different distractions and blah, 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 until that dog will do it pretty reliably under those stimuli. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot harder to do that with punishment, with positive punishment. So actually, I think another question that I was going to ask you um, that you kind of just touched on was, what do you think 
are some of the most important functional roles that animal training plays in today's world? Like the police dogs? Yeah, yeah, for saying? instance. Like, yeah. like what? Yeah. So, um, I mean, we've, we've, for centuries, we've been training specifically dogs for, right. for a purpose. I mean, that's why we have all these different breeds. They were bred for a particular job. Um, and, and, you know, offering conditioning played a huge role in, in getting those dogs to, to do those jobs. And obviously they train, they bred them for specific characteristics, but those characteristics then went for a particular job. So, you know, strong dogs can start to pull things or, um, dogs with, with an innate ability to smell can be trained to, um, sniff out certain things. Um, which by the way, <laughs> completely pull, making us full circle. Uh, there's research that shows that the dogs pick up on the human gestures, sniff, uh, specifically like sniffer dogs, um, drug dogs was what the research was on and drug dogs will pick up on their handlers gestures and hit on specific things. And so, so part of the research was, was then saying if, for example, the handler is racist in some way, then they will react a certain way and hit on particular individuals, Um, which makes you completely um, really concerned with our uh, bomb sniffing dogs at airports, because there was a story recently that came out that they are picking dogs that don't look as mean. So they're getting away from like Malinois or German shepherds that have like the pointy ears and scare people Mm. to more like golden retrievers and stuff that have the floppy ears and floppy tails that people find cuter. Mm. Um, So if we're picking dogs, not on their behavioral ability and just on their cuteness, (laughs) then um, they're really just, there to make people feel better, even though they don't have any kind of ability whatsoever. So sorry, I kind of got off track, but I just thought that was kind of interesting. No, it's all good. I I think, you know, I didn't even consider the possibility that that was going on. I didn't actually even know that that they were switching the breeds over. Yeah, not necessarily the breeds, but but yeah, I can send you the paper. Okay, Um, yeah. The news article on that. Yeah, I was like, oh, great. <laughs> they weren't that reliable to begin with. And now we're picking them based on looks. So we're not even, you know, picking them right. based on their ability. So in, in a lot of cases, like the dog, you know, getting a hit, um, that's used as like probable cause. Right. <laughs> so it, it obviously has some like negative legal ramifications if we go down a path where we're getting a lot of false positives. Thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, of course. Of course, of course. Thanks for listening. With any questions or comments, feel free to email industryplant at industryplant.co. See you in another two weeks.